Well, uh, I get the privilege of in, uh, introducing our special guest today, Dr. Daniel Brown, and uh, there's a lot I could say about him. Uh, he has uh, planted dozens and dozens of churches throughout the world. He is an international speaker. He's written several books that have changed my life, and uh, he is the DNA uh, that is really our church. Well, it's Christ, but it, but it, uh, but it is Christ. But but Daniel is is really uh, and and the ministry uh, that he uh, has had throughout our lives, both the Van Rees, the Poppers, and many others that are a part of our team, uh, really are the key. Some of the key thoughts and ideas of why we do what we do. And uh, the thing I like best about him, though, is that he's real. He is very real. He is one of the smartest guys I know. But you are going to be able to hear things in the simplest way. And that takes a lot of, a lot of smarts to be able to do that. And I, I so appreciate the fact that he gives us the truth. And he gives it unvarnished. And he gives it in a way by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is key that we can receive and be changed by. So I want you to meet a great friend of our church and our great-grandfather in the faith, Dr. Daniel Brown. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, wow. Wait, how did I become a great-grandfather all of a sudden? I mean, I, you know, creeping old age is kind of uh, not moving as slowly as it once did in my life, but I don't think I really qualify for a great-great-grandfather. Uh, anyway, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, be with you to do something that I never get tired of doing, which is uh, to talk about God and, and about His Word, about the Bible, and everything that the Bible reveals to us about who God uh, really is. And... Um, you know, I kind of got my start, as it were, as a Bible study person, a Bible sharing, talking kind of a guy, way back when in my first year at university, uh, six years ago when I was younger. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was a long time ago, 1970 actually is when I was a freshman. And uh, I just had this thought that, wow, there's a lot of people on this campus and most of them don't know God. And how could I possibly keep this knowledge of such a, a glorious and, and love-filled uh, God? How could I keep that all to myself? So I had this thought that, you know, somebody needs to do something. And I don't know how it is here in Utah, but in California, if you wait for somebody, they never show up, which leaves nobody. And, well, that would be me. So since somebody didn't show up, only nobody could do something, and I began teaching these little Bible studies. Now, I have to tell you, I'm sure they were not very good Bible studies, but they were honest Bible studies. And what I mean by that is that what I found in this book, I simply articulated and put in my own words, and then I found something else, and I, I shared that. And you know this, one of the great principles that we have in the kingdom of God is that God loves to incarnate His Word. Uh, and that, that sounds kind of interesting. It's sort of a big word, incarnate. All that it really means is that this Word of His is alive. And He loves to pour it into people like you and me. And then as it goes down and does the work that it does in our heart, it can get so deep, it can get deeper than anything else as like the universal solvent to, to identify thoughts and intentions of our heart that sometimes even we don't know are there. But as it, as, it, as it goes down and then begins to come back up, it gets flavored. It's maybe too strong of a word, but it gets flavored with who and what you and I really are. And God is not, he's not worried that when he pours his truth in us, and then we put it in our own words in a way that, that really makes sense to us, he's not worried that that word will somehow become less than true. The danger, the danger is always when we haven't allowed his word into our soul, then sometimes the things that we say or the things that we think aren't necessarily true. And 
Even though in those early days I didn't know many Bible verses, I just got in the habit of this is what I read and I think this might be helpful to you. Well, now I've been doing that for many, many years and people like Ira say nice things. And so I'm, if you don't mind, I'm just going to go and do a very simple uh, Bible study. But before I get there, I, I wanted to um, just share with you a verse that was in my mind before uh, the, the worship began and as we were singing. It's a very simple verse found in the book of Psalms. And it says, God is good and does good. God is good and does good. Maybe you could tell your neighbor, God is good and, and does good. Yeah, there we are. Now, the reason I think maybe that was in my mind is because some people's notion of the goodness of God is... Um, right? God is good, and then you want to say, in addition to that, and he kind of can't stand people like you. you know, God is, God is, God is good you better get away. (laughs) No, no. The goodness of God is not this uptightness. The goodness of God is like he can't help himself but to do good to people who are around him. It it would be like if we had had a space heater and we plugged it in, we would say, the heater is hot and generates heat. The heater is hot, and because it's hot, it influences and affects the things that are around us. And I'm telling you, depending on how you understand the goodness of God, it will shape a great deal of what you think about religion and what it is that he is looking for from you. Because if God is good and is disgusted by people like you and me, Man, what hope do we have? Kind of, you know, scrub beneath your nails and behind your ears. and He's still going to be disgusted with you. But if he's good and does good, then the closer that I get to him, the more of that goodness uh, infuses into my life. You know what I'm saying? The point of a heater is that you get close when you're cold. What kind of a heater would it be that if it just if if a heater could talk, it'd be a curious heater, and you could probably make a lot of money taking it to a circus, but bear with me. What kind of a heater would it be if the heater warms up and then it just starts speaking? You're cold. You're really cold, and you make me sick. No, no, no. That's why the Bible says, hey, if you're hungry. If you're thirsty, come on. Because God can give you food and water with no cost to you. That's the kind of God that we serve. And so when I'm reading the Bible, I I try to remember all of those kinds of verses that paint this, this portrait of a God who so desperately wants you to be with him. Maybe you've heard another... I am going to get to my sermon eventually, but I, I, have, I have long introductions, okay? So when I finally get to the message, you'll know we're nearly finished. <laughs> uh, maybe you've heard this scripture, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, even you, whoever would believe in him, not behave, believe in him, would be saved. Now, I'm a preacher guy. That's what they call me, a pastor. But sometimes pastors, they just, they don't know how to loosen up a little bit. And you, and you hear them reading, for God does so love the world. And you're like, oh, wait a, wait a second here. No, let me translate that scripture for you, and and forgive me if this offends your religious sensibilities, but I'm just putting it into my language, and maybe you don't like my flavor, but okay. If you know anyone who has uh, any experience with uh, addiction, okay, I was trying to think of another way of saying it, but nothing came to my mind. If If you know anyone who has any experience with addiction... I mean, you know addiction. What happens is 
that thing, whatever it is. It's the focus of my whole attention, right? And a real addict, I don't mean your everyday dime store model, I mean your real addict will sell anything they have to sell to get their fix. God is addicted to you. And he was willing to hawk his own son to make sure that you could be with him forever. There's some people that try to convince you that Well, God tolerates you. All right, if you must, come on. And so it would be very easy for a God who can barely stand the sight of you. You give him any excuse to get rid of you and he'd take it. But a God who loves you to distraction. The Bible says that you are the apple of his eye, which is a funny expression. It just means he's got eyes only for you. And that God who sold his son to get you to himself is not likely to be a God who will look for any reason he possibly can find to say, well, that's it, you're out of here. He's not trying to get rid of you. He's just trying to get you closer to the heater so you can warm up and thaw out a little. There we are. Okay, well, the, the, the message that I want to share with you today uh, comes out of a little bit of a personal question mark in my mind. And I think this is one of the best ways to study the Bible is to have honest questions and then go to the Scriptures for uh, the answer that they would give to us. And uh, some time ago, I was invited to uh, go to the nation of Greece and do a seminar on how the law, the law of God, and how grace, the grace of God, how those two things kind of fit together. Uh, When I arrived there in in Athens, I was told by the leader of our movement in, in that nation, he said, you know, we're a very religious culture, the Greek Orthodox Church, and I'm not speaking negatively about the Greek Orthodox Church, I'm just saying what he said, that it puts a very heavy sort of a religious legalism on people. And he says, I've noticed something, that people who try to grow and flourish spiritually in a very legalistic uh, setting, they don't very, make very much progress because they keep trying to advance in their walk with God according to the law, rather than advancing in their walk with God according to grace. And so he says, I just want you to share with us uh, how all this stuff works together. And so I agreed to doing that, not realizing how little I really understood of how these two things went together. I mean, I've been a preacher for a long time, so I I could give you all that kind of stuff, and you'd go, oh, uh, thanks. And you would think that you're the dummy, when actually I just didn't fully understand it. But if you're going to do a seminar in Greece where they speak Greek, you can't very often say, well, you know, in the original language, this word really means... (laughs) Kind of doesn't work. So I figured I better do my homework and figure it all out. Now, part of my confusion was that... I don't know if this has ever happened to you. You read one verse and you read another verse, and they seem to be saying kind of the opposites of one another. And there were some verses that, 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 that kind of confused me that way. And there was one in particular that, uh, again, I could talk for hours. Trust me, I did that yesterday, and I could do it again today. I, I don't have time to go into all of them. I just want to focus on one scripture that's probably fairly well known to people. It was known to me. Um, and, and, and here's the verse. And I hope they don't put it up on the screen yet, because I'm going to quote it incorrectly because that's how I remembered it and one of my discoveries in really going back to the word of God to see okay what place does the law 
actually have in the life of someone who has come to Christ. Because the Bible tells us that Christ, now, he is the ending of the law as a means of gaining righteousness. Christ is the end of the law. And yet there was this verse in my mind, which I'm now going to quote inaccurately. Don't worry, we'll put up the accurate one in just a moment. So Christ is the end of the law uh, for those who believe. But here was the scripture. Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Now, Matthew 5.17, you can put it up on the screen, and I hope that visually you can quickly pick out the part of it that I, that I left out. Not a big deal, you might say, but it held the key to me understanding something that I'm trying to get across to you this morning. See, Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. But since I had left out the prophets part of it, I tried very, very hard to think, well, now, if Christ didn't abolish the law, but he's the end of the law for those that be, how does all of this work? And how really did Christ fulfill the law? Now, I could say, well, you know, he never did anything wrong, which is true. So he obeyed the law, if you want to think of it that way, perfectly. And so we give him a score, 100%, good for you, you fulfilled the law. He's the only one who ever has or whoever could fulfill the law. And okay, yeah. But I was still puzzled by this expression, fulfill the law. Is that fulfill the requirements of the law? What, 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 is he, what is he talking about? Well, since I was puzzled, instead of just lifting my eyes off the Bible and thinking, because I'll only get more puzzled when I do that, I put my eyes down into the Word of God, and I thought, well, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll look up every single verse in the Scriptures that talks about something being fulfilled. And it shouldn't surprise you what I discovered, that in the Gospels, every single instance where it says such and such happened, that it would be fulfilled what was written in the prophets. In fact, you know, one of the reasons that we call them the prophets is because they prophesy. Yeah, they prophesy. <laughs> See what I mean? I mean, I'm deep. What did Iris say? You're going to hear some simple things. You, oh, you sure will. <laughs> Okay, so they, they had prophecies about what was going to happen, and then so many of the details of Jesus' life, like he was born in the manger, he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, over and over again it kept saying, these things happened, that it would be fulfilled what was written. So if I had... Um, incorrectly remembered the scripture where Jesus said, I came to fulfill the prophets, I would say, oh yeah, and man, he did. I don't know how many hundreds of prophecies Christ actually fulfilled, but it's a lot of them. But the, 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 the stick point for me was how could he fulfill the law? Because, I mean, come on, I know what the law is. You know what the law is. Do this, don't do that. Do, do, and don't do. And make sure you don't mix, miss up the doo-doo. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's rules and regulations. Thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not. <laughs> it's just a bunch of regulations. It's a bunch of stipulations that you better do what you're supposed to do. So it threw me off a little bit because that was my impression of the law that it's just a bunch of commands. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations. And how Christ could fulfill that? Well, I, I guess, like I said earlier, because he obeyed all of those rules completely. But I didn't understand, well, what would that possibly mean to me? So after doing my Bible study and noticing every single time this word fulfilled is used in the scriptures, it's always hearkening back to a prophecy. And the only one that didn't fit that pattern is Christ fulfilling the law. And then I thought, wait a second. I mean, come on, it couldn't possibly... Could the law be more than just a list of rules and regulations? 
Could it be that the law itself was a kind of a prophecy? Oh, my goodness, I thought, well, I don't know. So again, when I don't know something, which is frequently, you wonder how come you read your Bible so much? Because I don't know so much. And when I get stumped, I go right back to the book. So I thought, could it be a prophecy? No way. But I better check just to be sure. So I decided that I would go back in the Old Testament to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. You know, Leviticus, it's, it's a pretty dense book. A lot of rules and regulations. Leviticus is kind of the quicksand of the Old Testament. And I don't know... <laughs> You know, how many New Year's resolution this year? Hallelujah, I'm going to read my way all the way through the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, <laughs> I kind of picture Leviticus as the westward hoe, you know, wagon train trail. And there's abandoned harpsichords and, you know, and cow skulls all over the way. You work your way through the book of Leviticus. I mean, I love the Bible. I, you don't... <laughs> But I'm, I'm just being frank with you, and this is my terrible confession I must make. I'm a, I, I read the Bible a lot. I'm a man of... I teach, but I only actually read every verse in Leviticus every fourth time I pass through the Bible. Okay, that's it. You heard it now. I, you know, because I fell into this trap. Oh, yeah, I know that. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. So it's like, auga, here we go, down into Leviticus. You know, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Expecting to be confirmed that it's just a bunch of rules and regulations. So imagine my shock. I'm reading chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter, chapter The first several chapters of Leviticus, there's nothing about any law or regulation. Do you know the first six or almost seven chapters of Leviticus are all statements about sacrifice and redemption and forgiveness and atonement? There's not rules about what you better do. They're all provisions for when you're not going to do what you should have done. When you've blown it, I just want to begin my announcement of the law by showing you all the different ways that recovery and redemption and salvation can still be brought to sinful people. I'm like, what? (laughs) Well, I mean, I did it all between my ears, but that's kind of what I'm like. (laughs) I... I mean, I almost wanted to, 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 to fall on my knees, but I was already seated, so it would have been awkward. <laughs> to say, God, what have, I, what have I done to your law? Because I'd be the first person to say, yeah, the law are rules and regulations and what God expects of you. And what violence have I done to your word? What distortion have I shared by not telling everyone that the law of God begins with sacrifice and redemption? And when we teach people about the law of Moses, but leave out the provision for for redemption and sacrifice, that law, without atonement and redemption that is not the law of God Uh, kind of off the subject and I don't mean this uh, politically but how many of you have health insurance okay and if you don't you need it okay (laughs) good (laughs) how many of you have actually read your health insurance policy there's always five. Yep, there you are. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for making the rest of us feel badly. Okay, but even if you haven't read it, what's your guess? What is the bigger part of your policy? What it does cover or what it does not cover? Absolutely. So if you're selling insurance, make my life easy. Just come to me and say it doesn't cover much. It'll cost you a lot. I'll buy it. Now, one of my 
difficulties with the law is that it just seems impossible to keep. I mean, there are so many rules and regulations. Do you know there's a regulation in there to be careful that you don't eat a piece of fruit unless that fruit has been grown on a tree that has been bearing fruit for a number of years? Now, how on earth? I go to the market and say to the green grocer, excuse me, how old was the tree that bore... I mean, what? And for most of us, it's a point of tremendous frustration that there are so many rules and regulations, I don't stand a chance. But just for a moment, what if we're to turn it around? What if we were to understand that the law of God begins with God essentially saying, I've been dealing with people like you for several hundreds of years. And I know the likelihood, based on the track record of your ancestor, Adam, and Eve, the track record of you being able to keep my commands is not very good. (laughs) So before I even give you a command, how about if I assure you that there can be forgiveness for any command that you break? Then suddenly the law, which before is a point of such frustration, becomes a killer insurance policy. Now, maybe you're more imaginative than I am, but even in my wildest, most... Well, let's don't go there. In my my wildest of imagining what kind of wrong could I do? Oh, no, let's don't go there. Um, You can't possibly think of anything that isn't covered. And you see, we fundamentally misunderstand the law when we picture it as something that God gives and says, try your best, sucker. (laughs) Now, as I kept on reading, I came to an episode that I want to spend the rest of my time uh, telling you the story. Uh, But if you would, let's go to Leviticus chapter 15, because before I tell you the story, I want to share what I believe is the theme verse of the book of Leviticus. Uh, What uh, kind of the shortest way of explaining everything that Leviticus and the law of God is intended to do. And so he says to to Moses, who's receiving all of this, the, the, the whole point is that you will keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness, lest they die in their Uncleanness. So that, that statement, the purpose of the law is to separate you from your wrongness. Because friends, there is wrongness in you. you. You know it. You don't need some preacher person to say, you're not completely, perfectly okay. <laughs> there's, there's, there's thoughts. There's history, there's behaviors, there are so many things that we have allowed ourselves to do, places that we have gone, and even if nobody else knows about it, even if it was only a place that we went in our heart, we know that there is wrongness and evil inside of us. And the one thing that all religions have in common is to say to people, you're not good, and you better get good. What differentiates the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is that God promises, I'm going to do for you what you can't possibly do. I am going to separate you from your uncleanness. Now, just for a moment, let me let me pose a question, if I could. To, to I don't have no idea why my hands do this when I'm posing you a question, but <laughs> let, let's say that you have committed a crime and you have been. Uh, uh, accused and you're brought, let's say you embezzled some, some money and hopefully you got to spend all of it before you got caught. But okay, here you are. You're, I mean, if you're going to go to jail, you might as well have had a little... little eh, we probably shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> so can you imagine that you now have been found guilty? I find you guilty, bang, of embezzlement. I sentence your embezzlement to 12 years in prison. You yourself are free to go. Is there any justice system on the planet 
that can separate someone from the wrong that they did and punish the wrong and set the person who did it free. No, because our whole notion is, if there's wrong in you, not only is the wrong going to be sentenced, but you are sentenced along with it. But God is a God of of judgment. A God of, of discernment. And He knows you very well. He framed you in your mother's womb. He wove you together. He is intimately acquainted with all of your ways. He knows you. And because He knows you so well, because you are His poem, because He knows you so well, He knows the difference between you and your stuff. And you cannot understand the Word of God without understanding this passion that God has first to have you with Him forever and His passion to thereby differentiate, separate you from the stuff that would otherwise keep you separate from Him. The whole point of the law is so that we would be able to identify the wrong that is inside of us, not to beat ourselves, but to be able to offer up that wrong and to confess the stuff that isn't right with the great hope that this God who diagnosed our illness is a God who can remove the sickness from our body. God wants to separate you from your sin. Now, as I'm reading along, don't forget, in the back of my mind, I'm trying to find prophecy. Now, that verse worked pretty well. But in the next chapter, and I'm not going to put the scriptures up yet. We'll put them up at the end of the story. But if you don't mind, I'd like the privilege of of telling you uh, one of the... I guess you'd say one of the ceremonies, one of the rituals that is laid out in the, the, in the law. And this particular uh, activity, ceremony, ritual, was, was perhaps the most important thing that ever happened. And the way that it worked, that once a year, the high priest of God would come into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, how the particulars of that worked are where I think you'll find a very profound prophetic message for yourself and an awareness of really what God wants to do through, through Jesus in your life. For this ceremony to take place, there was to be one bull, one steer, one bull, and two goats. And the high priest, this once a year, would, uh, would come, and before he would step into the Holy of Holies, the bull would be sacrificed, would be killed, and the blood of that animal would be sprinkled on the high priest, uh, upon his person, upon his garments. And we know that, according to the law, that blood is the, is the cleanser. Shed blood is what cleanses sin. Shed blood is the antidote to any wrongness. Shed blood is the soap that can scour away any sin or stain in someone's life. And so this animal was sacrificed, and the blood was sprinkled upon the high high priest before he could even step into the Holy of Holies. Now as I'm reading that, I'm thinking to myself, what? I mean, come on, this is the high priest of God. And I'm thinking, if anybody is good, it's the high priest. Because probably if he's not good, he ain't going to be the high priest very long. They'll get a new one. (laughs) And this is a man who kept the law. Because you can't be the high priest and not keep the law. So we're talking seriously good man here. And yet, it's as though God says, Not good enough. A man who perfectly kept the whole law before he could even step into the Holy of Holies, he had to be cleansed with shed blood. And I thought, 
What hope do I have? I'm not exactly the high priest of much of anything. And if the high priest of God ain't clean enough to step into God's presence, do I think I'm ever going to get clean enough to get in? What a message. The high priest who keeps the law perfectly isn't clean enough. So knock yourself out. You're still dirty. Okay, so he gets all cleaned up. He steps into the holy of holies. They call it this because there ain't no place on the planet holier. And nobody has been in here for an entire year. It's not like a teenager's room. No one has been there. And it is Like, like there's been uh, not even dust, a dust-free environment. So he steps into the Holy of Holies, but before he can do anything, the first goat is also killed. And the blood of that animal has to be sprinkled upon all the implements of worship, even, even the mercy seat. Because it's as though God says, this place that is the holiest place on the planet, this place that has not been polluted by the presence of even one human cell, it's still not clean enough. I mean, it's like making the statement that, that, well, there's spiritual dust everywhere, and if you're on this planet, you're dirty. And no matter how holy it might be, it's still not clean enough. Now I'm really thinking, there is not, I have no hope. I'm not a good man. And everything on this planet is dirty. You know, how much religion spends its time trying to distance itself from the muck of the world? And there are entire religious mindsets that view their assignment to get away from all the corruption in the world. Sweetness, run as far as you want. Get as far away from those those humans as you can possibly get. And guess what? You're still dirty. You're picking up a theme here, oh filthy one. (laughs) There's no place to go. Where I am automatically clean. There is no amount of goodness or rightness that makes me clean. And so the high priest, having been cleansed himself, coming into the Holy of Holies, cleansing the utensils of worship, then the second goat is brought into play. And this goat we know as the scapegoat. And so the high priest of God, by virtue of his spiritual authority, the place that he had in God's economy of things, Not a place that made him automatically perfect, but a place that gave him the privilege, the power, the responsibility to to take all of the sins of the nation of Israel. And as he would place his hands upon the head of this goat, he would infuse onto this animal every wrong thing. Every wicked thought, every misbehavior, every measure of sin and distortion from the whole nation. The privilege of drawing out every sin and passing it onto the head of this animal. 
I don't know how long it took. I, I, I don't know how long the priest waited. Was it minutes? Was it hours? I don't know. I just know that when he was done, every single wrongness had been transferred (laughs) out of people and placed on this goat. And then the Bible describes another man, the man who stands ever ready, not in a hurry, not Come on, that's enough. Well, you got most of it. It's okay. I mean, you know. Who just stands ever ready, waiting until every measure of wrong has been put on that goat. And this man's job is to lead that goat out into the wilderness so far away from civilization that that goat could never find its way back with the sin that had put upon it. You will recognize this story in a statement that was made in the New Testament, very well known. You will remember John the Baptist. When he introduced Jesus to the world, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And many of us who don't know the Old Testament don't realize that John was referring to this prophecy that every Jew was looking forward to when the scapegoat, the Messiah, would come and instead of a yearly ritual, that he would be able to come and take upon himself the sins of the world. And that he would carry those sins so far away. He would separate us from our sins so far that those sins would never have an opportunity to come back and identify us as the culprit. Behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, whose assignment is to take upon himself all of your sins, past present and future and having taken all those sins upon himself to remove them so far away that when God now looks upon you as a person who has allowed those sins to be placed upon the scapegoat who has had their sins removed that when God looks upon you he sees none of that sin It has been removed from the equation. And because all of the wrong has been removed, he embraces us and welcomes us to be in his presence forever. Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill and to be for you the scapegoat that can remove your sins forever and ever and ever. And when I read that, I, 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 I was staggered. And I wanted to fall to my knees again. Not because of something that I had ever preached, but because of the lie that I hear so very often. Because I want to do good, I want to do right, but there are times when I don't. I make mistakes. I knowingly do what I shouldn't do. And in those moments when I'm recollecting or living out the experience of bad choices, wrong decisions, there's a a lie that comes to me that, that, I don't know how to put it, that wants to bring those sins back. It's like, maybe you've had this experience, my wrong becomes so in my face, so a part of me. And I'm focusing on that wrong that I have done. And I, I, God, I'm sorry. Lord, Lord, forgive me, forgive me. 
But I keep thinking of that sin as being a present reality. I forget about the scapegoat. I become so struck with the wrongness in my life, in the past, in the present. Fear about what it might be in the future. That I forget all about the scapegoat. And I stare at this thinking, what what will I do? What will I do with this? Oh no, oh no. Because if God judges me now, he will see this in my hand. I forget about the scapegoat. Who takes upon himself the sins and carries them far away. The difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and every other religious mindset in the world is this glorious promise that God himself will carry your sins away. And imagine Jesus, whom the Bible refers to as our high priest, who didn't need to be cleansed himself who didn't step into the earthly holy of holies, but stepped into the very presence of God, who was not just the high priest, but also the scapegoat who carried away. And friends, this is one of the ways that you will know the difference between and perhaps your own thinking. When Christ carries your sin away, there's no one that has the right to bring it back. It is not Jesus who wants to remind you constantly of past failures, who wants to tell you, you better do something to make up for what you have done. No, Jesus carries your sin away. If you have sin in your life, dear friend, you need a scapegoat. His name is Jesus. Amen. that Jesus Christ carried your sins away forever. Amen. Is that you? Raise your hand just while, just in the intimacy between you and God. Is that you? Good. Let's pray. Lord God, we just respond to this message right now. We thank you that your spirit is here, a spirit of grace, a spirit of mercy. Thank you that you are our scapegoat. And you carried our sins away as far as the east is from the west. And right now we just break in the name of Jesus Christ that spirit of condemnation, that spirit of guilt that would be upon those that have already been forgiven. That is the lie of the enemy of our souls, the devil. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we grab hold of the grace that has been given to us at the highest price, the cross of Jesus. Lord, we just give this to you. We cast our cares upon you right now. Never to allow the lie of the enemy to cause us to feel condemned again. In Jesus' name. And the second group is 
maybe, maybe you haven't given your life to Christ or maybe you've walked away from God. And today you are sensing the Lord speak to you these very truths that he really does love you the way Daniel was speaking of, the way the word of God, the Bible talks about, that he does love you and that he has paid a price, a ransom for your forgiveness and a ransom for that relationship for all eternity. And if that's you, if you want to come to Christ and give yourself to Jesus, ask him to forgive your sins and let him be the Lord, the leader of your life, or you're returning after walking away, I just want to give you that opportunity in the privacy of prayer right now. Just raise your hand to God. Just raise your hand. Amen. 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 God, so this is why he came. He came so that you can be set free. He came so that you could be healed and delivered and be in relationship with him forever. What an amazing thing. Hallelujah. Thank you for these hands, Lord. I just want to give an opportunity, let church as a whole, and and those of you that raised your hands, we're going to pray this prayer, and you're praying it maybe for the first time. We're praying it, uh, joining with you and saying an amen to your decision. So church, can we say this prayer together? Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize that I have sinned. There is nothing good that I could do to change that fact. But you have provided a way in Jesus Christ to forgive my sins, to take my sins upon yourself and the penalty, which is death. And so in the name of Jesus, I ask you to take my sins. I ask you to lead my life Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me like no one else ever could. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.